Hello, and welcome to Good People Talk, the monthly podcast of the Good People Fund. This episode, we visit Detroit. It's a city that has been written off due to economic and social challenges, but it's emerging as a dynamic laboratory for creative social entrepreneurs. GPF executive director and co-founder Naomi Eisenberger speaks with three of those visionary changemakers. With GPF support, each is turning personal passion into helping Detroit's youth at risk. Naomi's guests are Sherelle Hogan of Pure Heart Foundation, David Silver of Detroit Horsepower, and Courtney Smith of Detroit Phoenix Center. This episode is adapted from a Good People Fund webinar that aired in March. Visit goodpeoplefund.org for more information and to view it. For now, here's Naomi and GPF's inspiring grantees in Detroit. You may wonder, how did the Good People Fund end up in Detroit? A lot of what we do is very purposeful and we're very nimble. Five years ago, I guess it was, I must have read an article about Detroit, the city and the challenges faced by the residents of Detroit. And I started to do a little bit of research to see exactly what the situation was there. And I came across an organization, I guess it's an organization called Detroit Soup. I reached out to the person who started Detroit Soup. It's a gathering once a, once a, a week, I believe it is, where local programs are invited to come in and give a pitch. They get a bowl of soup. I think it's above a bakery and they get bread. And these local programs uh, come and make a pitch for the work that they're doing. I reached out to the founder of that organization and she shared with me some of the new upcoming programs that were running in Detroit. And one of those programs was something called Detroit Horsepower, which was started by a young man, David Silver. It intrigued me because the Good People Fund, as many of you know, have been very much involved in horses more so in Israel and therapeutic horseback riding. I asked David about his work. That began a conversation that has gone on for four years. A little over a year ago, the Good People Fund started to fund Detroit Horsepower. This past summer, during the unrest of the Black Lives Matter riots that were occurring across the country, I reached out to David again. I was struggling within my own mind as to what we, the Good People Fund, um, actually do to help people of color, the community of color. And I, I reached out to David and I said, are there any programs that you can recommend in Detroit that were founded by people of color? And in about 20 minutes, I had a list of four people. On that list were Courtney Smith and Sherelle Hogan, who you will all get to meet very shortly. So there was great intent in our efforts to see what we could do as a small organization to help in the city of Detroit. I will tell you that after 25 plus years in this work, listening to the stories of Courtney and Sherelle were incredibly moving. I decided that we, we would take their work on along with David, who we had been supporting, and see what kind of effect we could have on the youth in Detroit, which who have so many, many challenges in front of them. Without much more to say, I would like to introduce our three panelists and grantees with us tonight. First is Sherelle Hogan, who is the founder of Pure Heart Foundation. Very, very meaningful program 
that addresses the needs of children whose parents have been incarcerated. Our second panelist is Courtney Smith, who is the founder of Detroit Phoenix Center, which is a drop-in home for homeless youth. And finally, David Silver, who is the founder of Detroit Horsepower. I'm going to ask each of you to spend about three minutes telling your stories, and then we'll get into some further questions. Sherelle? Uh, good evening, everyone. Naomi, again, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor to be on a panel with you, Courtney and David, and I'll jump right in. So like Naomi said, my name is Sherelle Hogan. I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and I am the founder and CEO of Pure Heart Foundation. Um, I started Pure Heart about six years ago. Uh, May 23rd, it will be our sixth year in operations when I noticed the lack of support children of incarcerated parents had. If I can give a little of my story, when my mother was six, uh, she went to prison. I mean, when I was six, my mother went to prison. And when I was seven, my father went to prison. And they probably ended their incarceration sentences around uh, me reaching about 14. And from their incarceration, I experienced a lot of uh, psychological, physical, and mental abuse. And um, I recognized as a little girl that children of incarcerated parents and uh, people in that circumstance really didn't have support. I can remember being a little girl in a courtroom watching my mother and father be handcuffed and no one checked about uh, my emotional state or well-being at that point, at that moment. So from there, um, I grew up, I went to college, I uh, fought through the uh, physical turmoil of still being imprisoned, even though my parents were released because of the psychological devastation that I had experienced in my childhood. But I got connected to a mentor who uh, spoke positive things into my life. And then I went on to college, uh, began to work in corporate America. And then I understood that uh, just because you go to college and find yourself in corporate America is not fulfilling when it comes to your purpose. So I quickly began to search for my purpose. And uh, when I began to see God and ask him to lead me, he spoke uh, the vision of Pure Heart Foundation. And I quickly uh, listened to his voice. I quit my job and I literally went all in with Pure Heart. Uh, so six years to date, we have serviced about 2,500 young people providing immediate intervention and support uh, and wraparound services to really um, create a system that will break the cycle of generational incarceration. Just to give a little uh, background about Michigan statistics, 228 children and young uh, in Detroit has had at least one parent incarcerated before reaching the age of 10. And the ratio is one out of 10 in Michigan and four out of 10 in Detroit, Michigan. And um, they often fall through the cracks of property um, homelessness, um, the lack of resources, the lack of education. So Pure Heart literally wanted to intervene and create a cycle of hope and awareness that would ultimately dismantle the school to prison pipeline system and uh, create a new cycle and break the cycle of generational incarceration. So I don't wanna go over my time, but that's who I am. That's what I stand for. Outside of Pure Heart, I authored a book called The Prisoner's Kid that's behind me. 
Um, and I spoke uh, and I've had a national uh, book tour going to facilities sharing my testimony uh, from the perspective of a child because they're often forgotten and their silent struggles uh, is now being addressed because of your heart. Thank you, Sherelle. You're welcome. Courtney, tell us a little bit about yourself and Detroit Phoenix Center. Yes, hi everyone. My name is Courtney Smith and I am the founder and CEO of the Detroit Phoenix Center. And much, and much like many young people growing up in the city of Detroit, I experienced endemic poverty. Um, like Sherelle, uh, my parents were incarcerated. Uh, my mom, her rights were revoked. Um, and my dad's rights were revoked for my, for my siblings and I at a very early age. And so by the age of three, I had been to six different foster homes and I later got adopted, but what had with the system caused a failed adoption. Um, where I was forced out of my home at 15. And even though, you know, my life was strained, um, I experienced a lot of, just like many young people growing up in the city of Detroit who experienced foster care or adverse experiences, um, had experienced physical, mental, emotional abuse, but I found my solace in education. I read a lot of books um, because even in my adopted family, I was exposed to education. So I found my solace in school. And so reading became a safe haven for me and I excelled academically. I graduated from high school, um, living in a homeless shelter. Um, one day while I was living in the shelter, I challenged one of the staff um, about a policy that the shelter was having. They did not address my concerns. And so I sent an email to the CEO about the policy and the shelter implemented the policy and many of the youth that were living in the shelter at that time looked at me as an advocate. That was a very pivotal moment in my life because I knew that my voice had power. I was later invited to serve on the board of directors for that, for that organization as a youth. And that really enforced my desire and gave me a lens into looking into see what the nonprofit world looked like. So fast forward many years later, I went on to college and I graduated from the Honors College at Eastern Michigan University. Um, and I worked in college access and retention. I'm working with first generation college students and students who were also in foster care. And so following college, um, I had an opportunity to take a train journey across the country with 25 other millennials nationwide to solve a crisis in our community. Um, and the crisis that I chose was the crisis of youth homelessness. Having done my honors thesis on the lived experiences of homeless college students and also just knowing the challenges that many young people face on the street, I traveled across the country. And what I found out on the train was one, the youth felt that their voices were not being elevated. Two, that those leading the organizations, they didn't look like the youth that were being serviced. And three, the models that I've seen in other communities um, would be better served in Detroit if adapted well. And so came back to Detroit, convened a group of young people, and we built out what is known today as the Detroit Phoenix Center. Um, we are a high impact nonprofit organization that operates the first and only drop-in center for youth that are in crisis, um, particularly those who are experiencing homelessness or street connected. So a young person can drop in, they can take a shower, they can wash their clothes, they can access a food pantry. We have academic enrichment, 
wraparound services. We provide coaching and case management to 150 youth year round, but we provide case management and really intensive support to about 30 of those young people. Um, we have served 2000 youth today. We've been featured um, by the Biden-Harris administration for the work that we've been done. We've been honored internationally from Detroit all the way to Brazil about the model and centering the voices of youth. And I can go on and on about the work that we do, but we really work to provide a safe space um, for young people to thrive because we believe that every young person deserves a place to call home and the tools and resources that they need to live out their full potential. One in five youth in Detroit that experience homelessness are victims of human trafficking. And there are about 15,000 children and youth who are experiencing homelessness on any given night in Detroit. And 1,100 of those are in the Detroit Public School Community District. And so we really want, and we have been a resource and a support to those young people to improve the outcomes so that they can live healthy and safe and thriving lives. Thank you, Courtney. I now people understand why I love my job. David, last but certainly not least, tell us about your journey. Well, before I do that, I just want to take a moment to honor the, the personal stories that have been told so far by, by Sherelle and Courtney. It's both inspiring to hear your own personal journeys. And I've, I fully expected to be the least inspiring um, panelist on your Zoom screen tonight, but to have seen, you know, from a little bit of distance, the the work that you've been doing for many years. Um, very humbly, you know, here to share my story, and with a huge amount of appreciation for your leadership and your personal commitment to moving the needle for youth opportunity in our city. So thank you for the work that you do. I'm not from Detroit. I grew up in Westchester County, the well-off suburbs of New York City, where horseback riding was a huge part of my life growing up, something that I took for granted, to be perfectly honest. My mom grew up with horses, and she passed on that love and that opportunity to be a competitive horseback rider to me and my younger sister from a very early age. And it wasn't until during college, I took a step back from the intense competitive riding that I had had a huge amount of privilege and opportunity to enjoy in my formative years and became very passionate about education and finding my place in the opening doors for young people growing up with far more challenges on their path to success than I ever could have imagined. That led me to join Teach for America, which recruits recent college graduates to teach all over the country in underserved school districts and placed me in Detroit. And I had actually never been to Michigan before and moved to, uh, been living in the city of Detroit since 2012. And for those first two years, 2012 to 2014, I was a fourth and fifth grade teacher at Burns uh, Elementary Middle School uh, on the west side of Detroit. And during that time, I was really influenced by the research on social emotional learning and the, the character skills that research shows underlie success in school and in life. And as I was working to bring those conversations into my classroom about confidence and empathy and perseverance and other research-based traits, it, to cite examples from my own personal experiences, horses and the opportunities that I had had with horses were consistently the answers that I was giving of how I had had the chance to shape those critical um, internal tools that we use to overcome challenges in our path. 
And as I was having conversations with my students, it was disingenuous in a way because none of my students had had anywhere near the opportunities that I had been given. And, you know, maybe somebody kind of plopped them on a horse for a pony ride and you kind of get led around and it's time to get off. That's all, you know, that is for the most part accessible. And, and I was kind of stewing over what role that I could have in unlocking the potential of our young people uh, growing up in the city. Uh, you know, over time became clear that I had an opportunity to step outside the classroom and start Detroit Horsepower to provide the high impact youth development opportunities that I had been privileged to have to young people like my students. And so that's what we've been doing since 2015. Uh, our current model brings students from Detroit to partner horse barns outside the city that donate the use of their space and their horses for us to operate our free summer horse camps and an after-school program. While we make progress towards the long-term goal, which is to locate a new urban equestrian center on a large piece of vacant land uh, in a community that wants horses to be part of the neighborhood's future so that we can scale the number of youth that we can serve, the depth of their experience, and contribute to the fabric of stronger Detroit communities by turning vacant land into a community asset. I think, David, the idea of having an equestrian center in the middle of Detroit was what really got me when we first talked, because that was very much a dream at the time that we first met. And right now, it's a little bit more than a dream. It isn't yet happening, but you are well uh, well on the way to, to making it happen. You've just heard three people with very, very unique perspectives. They're all very representative of the kinds of people that the Good People Fund looks for. Comment on um, what do you see is sort of the value of having a personal narrative or a personal struggle to create a vision of change? Does it inform you every day? And if it does, how does it inform you? Courtney, do you want to start? Yes. So um, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me as a panelist. And I want to thank um, Sherelle and David uh, for sharing this space with me and for sharing their personal stories and their personal narratives. Um, everybody has a personal narrative. I think it's, it's important for folks to know their why and use that to inform their vision for change. However, I don't believe that is necessary for someone to have a personal struggle in the sense of us glorifying trauma. Because the reality is no young person should have to be without a home um, and the basic needs that they need to thrive. No young person should have to grow up feeling um, as if they are alone or left out. But I do believe that lived experiences qualifies folks in a way that no, that that not having a personal struggle or lived experience uh, does with the work that we do because you can center the voices and the lived experiences of those that, that are being served. But I think what's more important than having a personal struggle or a personal narrative is knowing what your why is. Um, and if you know what your why is, then you can lead with that and listen and to those who have those lived experiences and center their experiences. But I think that a personal narrative is knowing your why. And that is what informs the vision for change. Because if you don't know why you're doing the work that you do, or you don't know your own story, then you're, you're not going to be grounded um, in your service delivery. And you're not going to be grounded when challenges come your way. 
David, do you want to comment? I certainly echo everything Courtney just shared. I think the only thing I could add, I'm sure Sherelle could add further, you know, owning your narrative and being fueled by work that's deeply personal is empowering and propels you through, you know, a lot of challenges along the path, you know, in the nonprofit journey of being a, you know, founding executive director, there's, uh, there's always a steep learning curve. And I know nobody's speak for myself trained me to be an executive director, I imagine the experience is similar. Um, and to, you know, have that passion fueled commitment to the work, to knowing yourself and knowing this work matters is, yeah, essential to, to persist and know that there are people counting on you uh, because you, you have something valuable to offer and there's nothing that's going to stop you from reaching that goal. Thank you. Sherelle? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, agree with Courtney and David. I absolutely think it's not necessary for you to have lived a struggle or faced a challenge to qualify you for uh, founding an organization or being a change agent. However, I will say you can't be what you don't see. And a lot of times uh, my scholars, they enroll in the program very shy and very hopeless. But once they find out that I uh, not only founded the organization, but I was literally in their shoes, it motivates them to want to fight for themselves. And as a leader, it gives you, um, uh, it's a term that we all use sometimes, secret sauce. And that secret sauce is just because you can look your, I call our baby scholars, you know, in the face and say, you know, if Miss Sherelle can do it, you can do it too. And um, to be able to give them that hope, not from research or uh, not from just recognizing the need, but actually living that gives them um, a sense of trust like never before. And then also, sometimes you're not able to articulate how being in a circumstance make you feel. And I have learned throughout uh, leading Pure Heart that if you hadn't had a parent incarcerated, you honestly just don't know how it feel. And words sometimes can't even articulate that feeling. But just knowing that you can relate to it, you know, uh, exemplifies that. So I think that's the, the advantage that you have from living an experience. Um, but I think the last point of the question is how do you stay informed? And a way for me is I recognize that the services and support that I needed when I was six and seven, when my parents were incarcerated is different from what the young people need now. So it gives me an opportunity to elevate uh, the work that we do through making sure that we're servicing the current need, even though it's still the same circumstance, if that makes sense. Very much so. I know the work that you are doing might look easy, but we, we certainly know that it, it, it is not easy at all. So I'm going to ask you, Courtney and Sherelle, first, what are the, what are the challenges that you, that you both face as Black women? who are trying to establish and sustain your organizations. Courtney, do you want to start? <sighs> um, it is a loaded question. <laughs> so I kind of pared it down. 
um, just to make it more digestible. I think that one of the greatest challenges as a Black woman that I've experienced um, leading and sustaining the organization was, and it still is, mental health. Being a Black woman and needing to show up for my organization or the organization that I lead as a leader while still combating, you know, social economic challenges that we face, uh, systemic racism, you know, oppression, it's hard. And still dealing with your own trauma, like the trauma, it qualifies you to lead. You can relate to your young people and really use your experiences to inform program development but there's still healing and there are there's still trauma that's attached to that. And so leading the organization and being inundated with the traumas from the young people that you're you're serving and the families and then the trauma of your own family in your in your own situation, it's important that you have tools such as a therapist or a mentor. Um, because it can become overwhelming. In the wake of COVID-19, we saw thousands in our community die. It was a point during COVID where every single week someone passed away, I knew them. Um, I think about the day that the Detroit Phoenix Center opened. I learned just a few you know, days earlier, my youngest brother you know, died by suicide. And so mental health, and I still needed to show up. So on the day that the Phoenix Center opened, I got the call that, you know, my brother passed away. And I still had to show up that day, get in front, say the speech, and be there and show up. And that's the reality that many of us face every single day as a Black woman. You have to wear an S on your chest as a superwoman to truly, truly show up for your communities. And the young people that I service don't know, you know, a lot about some of the traumas and some of the things that we face day to day in terms of securing funding and needing to, you know, my, the very first funder we ever had said to me that I was a flight risk. I was 24 years old. I was a black woman in Detroit, a black young woman in Detroit, the youngest that they ever had funded. You know, if I was not of color, I wouldn't have had that, that conversation wouldn't have never happened. And so black leaders, we have to dismantle systems and be a champion for our communities while still being affected by racism, trauma, and, and oppression. Um, and I'm just going to leave it there because I know that Sherelle ha has her own, you know, experiences that she would like to share. But I would, if I had to pare it down, I would say the mental health, the funding, and, and also just navigating um, systemic barriers um, that, you, that you face. Absolutely, Courtney. Um, it's interesting because those were my three points. Um, <laughs> literally, I'm like, how do I narrow things down but to... Take a deeper dive into the mental health part is where I really want to uh, communicate about. I remember when I first founded Pure Heart, I was, uh, I think, 25. And um, I would have these meetings with funders and I would break down the systems and why Pure Heart needed to exist. And I was always told that I needed to stop being an emotional leader. And I had to 
articulate to the funders that it's an emotional position. You are experiencing your own trauma every day when you serve your young people because they share that same experience. And then also Heartbeats is attached to an organization. How can it not be emotional? And as a leader, it's my responsibility to care. And if you're telling me how I, you know, allocate my funding to make it a more fitting look is disservicing the resources that our young people need. So I quickly found out that as a black leader, it's so easy to be faced with compromising positions when it comes to funding and when it comes to being invited into different spaces, because they almost want you to forget who you are and become someone else. And um, of course, when I say they, I'm talking about uh, people that's not of color and that have a different opinion on how organizations should be led as far as leadership. I'll stop there, but that's what I really wanted to uh, communicate about because that's a very interesting space to have to live in daily. Um, knowing that funders want to service, they want to fund programs and they don't see um, teaching a child how to use a sanitary napkin and provide Providing that napkin is more critical in a sense than, you know, buying them a book. You know, they're both very, very important. But if our young people don't know the basic necessities or how to, you know, have the basic needs, they won't thrive. And if you're not um, from a community of poverty, you won't understand that. So just being able to articulate um, the needs of our program is very, very critical and sometimes challenging as a Black leader. Thank you, Sheryl. David, you're coming to this from a totally different perspective. Can you add, is there anything that, any challenges that you face as a white person in Detroit? Well, to pick up on the three threads we've been spinning through, so I, I don't face the systemic barriers that, that Courtney and Sherelle have grappled with their whole lives. And when it comes to mental health, I think the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted the, Im the importance of well-being for every person, but what Courtney and Shrell have both been truly vulnerable in sharing um, is lived trauma that uh, it, it consistently uh, re-traumatized uh, through you know, the, the deep personal connections we all make with our students that resonates in a very different way uh, for me when I'm you know, having a home visit with students that have lost a family member. It's not resonating with a personal experience. It's tapping into the empathy that we learn from horses and the family environment that we provide as part of our program, but it's not the same. I think that funding was the other thread that I might be more aligned to speak to just in, in a general sense. You know, we, we have a perverse dynamic in starting up a nonprofit where you really need to demonstrate some level of programming and impact in order to get funding and you can't get your wheels turning and provide those much needed services without initial funding. In that regard, you know, I'd just like to highlight the immense amount of privilege that comes from having savings and family members who were, were there to help me out if this nonprofit journey that I was taking didn't work out and I was tough on my luck. I knew I had a safety net to go out there kind of on this ledge and, and start a new organization. I would put that out there as, you know, certainly something that I've experienced of 
working really hard, having a shoestring budget, you know, wishing we had more resources and, and then you're kind of getting to a level where you're finally getting some attention, getting some more significant funding and it, it starts to flow a little easier after you've been working as hard as you possibly can for several years. Um, but there is, you know, that ability to take a leap of faith to bet on yourself um, I have to say is, is easier when you're coming from a place of both more access to resources and a, and a, and a network that can potentially, you know, be early social investors, if you will. As a white person uh, working in a city that's 82% African-American, it's been critically important to continue to build my own body of knowledge when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, how that plays a role in the curriculum we develop uh, for our students, our hiring and our recruitment of board members, volunteers, and the role that we play in solidarity with Black-led organizations on behalf of the students we all serve has been critically important and one that I know I'm still growing in and I'm grateful to an outstanding number of mentors, especially leaders of color who have been willing to invest their knowledge in me and, and help bring me and Detroit Horsepower along. I mentioned early on that I reached out to David with intent to find leaders of color who were doing work that basically followed our model. I think when we all spoke, when I spoke with each of you, I, I expressed my discomfort. And I said that it was I don't know if I used the word embarrassing, but it was uncomfortable for me. How do you view that approach to philanthropy or to just making this a better world? Um, are there benefits to it or are there more red flags than there are benefits? First, Naomi, I think that it is wonderful um, that you reached out um, to David and David connected you to um, me and Sherelle. So thank you for being intentional in that way. And thank you for embracing what I like to call productive discomfort. Um, I think that it's necessary for us all to embrace productive discomfort and have cultural um, humility and understanding and have uncomfortable conversation and interracial, um, inter intergenerational as well um, conversation. So I think that there are benefits to that because we learn from each other. And one of the benefits is share, share power and resources, um, which we know that historically marginalized and BIPOC communities have been left out of. And of course, I have to say again, kudos to you all, because we're now connected to each other. Um, I think that a red flag that I look for is tokenism. And if the company is funding Black-led organizations, or we saw through the wake of the pandemic, a lot of social corporate philanthropy movements, and they're like, we want to fund Black organizations. But then my question is, what does your board look like? What does your staff look like? And to me, those questions answer whether or not you're just looking to write a check to, to say that you're doing something good or if the values that you say you hold are really true. Cheryl? Drops mic, Courtney. No, seriously. <laughs> um, but I echo that. Um, I do also want to commend you 
Naomi for having the conversation. Um, it's interesting because Pure Heart, we're starting a podcast called The Forgotten Conversation. And I think these is, uh, this conversation is often forgotten, right? Um, we're not really talking about how it is to be Black leaders. And if we are talking about it, we're talking about it to other Black leaders. So for you to uh, host this and to start the conversation is brave and bold. And I commend you for having the courage to be uncomfortable, but also uh, wise enough to know that not being comfortable is a space to grow in. So thank you for that. And that truly means a lot to me. I think one of the red flags for me is uh, exactly like Courtney said, uh, when people try to connect uh, with Pure Heart to one, exploit my scholars, or also to say that they were attached to something. It's so easily, it's quick to decipher because their intentions um, just scream I just want to say that I'm attached to it. Um, a lot of people, they see what you post and they see uh, the magnitude and of the progress in which your organization has made and it's appealing to others. But once they get close niche to the organization and recognize that it's so much deeper than optics and it's so much deeper than events that these are children that is living an experience that once the camera goes off their parent is still incarcerated so you can easily tell who's in it for the right reason and who's not so um that's my take on it and um i definitely am honored to have discernment and I'm definitely honored to know uh, what I can call a spade a spade. And if I don't think that you have a pure heart, you won't be attached to pure heart. <laughs> um, so I'll stop there, but that's my take on it. David, do you think that the challenges that the kids are facing in Detroit are unique? Or do you think that the work that you're doing and Sherelle and Courtney are doing could be easily transmitted to other cities? Absolutely. Um, Detroit has some particular challenges, but they're emblematic of systemic disinvestment in our highest need communities and restricting resources and opportunities away from communities of color. And so if we look at whether it's other urban centers around the country or underprivileged communities that, that aren't in a city. I think, you know, in, in our case, the life lessons we learned from horses are universal. This is not something that there's, there's nothing wrong with our Detroit students. These are the skills that I had the privilege of learning um, through my experiences with horses. And it's about leveling the playing field to ensure our kids in Detroit have the same kind of high impact opportunities as their privileged peers growing up in the suburbs. I think that the, the second layer that Detroit Horsepower sees the opportunity is at the community level and Detroit does have a significant challenge of um, vacant land spread out across uh, our city limits. And so finding the right space that's appropriate for horses and in a community that wants horses to be part of the neighborhood's future and turning that vacant land into a, a community asset, a hub for neighborhood life and strengthening the fabric our students grow up in is, is a, something that horses can uniquely address because they provide such quality opportunities for youth development 
and horses take up a lot of space. And so there are some outstanding urban riding programs in cities like Philadelphia and Los Angeles, Hartford, Connecticut, and the list goes on and on, you know, decades old organizations that we've learned a tremendous amount from, and they operate on three acres or four acres. And so to have a partnership with Detroit Public Schools to reactivate a 14 acre demolished school site in the heart of the city is you know, something that other cities can only dream of having that access to contiguous open space and taking the time to understand that not only is this a great opportunity for an urban equestrian center, but it fits community led goals for what they wanna see in their neighborhood's future is something that we've been really intentional about, something that we're tremendously excited about opening this future facility by 2023. And certainly we get calls from folks in you know, other communities around the country trying to understand if, if there's you know, anything that, yeah, I'm, I'm an open book in terms of, I'm, I'm, there's so many people that have poured into me and helped uh, shape Detroit horsepower to where we are today that I love talking with folks in Minneapolis and Rochester, New York and Birmingham, Alabama and St. Louis, Missouri that are seeing these opportunities in their communities. And I, I love getting those emails and having those phone calls and staying in touch with folks along their own journeys because these are um, universal opportunities that I hope we can spread. On our webinar tonight is Larry Olnick, who is another Detroit grantee. Um, he was not part of the panel. We restricted the panel to, to programs that are working with youth, but Larry Olnick is an amazing, amazing man who spends uh, many days a week riding around downtown Detroit, feeding hungry people and doing much, much more than just feeding them. I have been with Larry on the street and he knows all of the people that he helps by name. He knows their stories and he has helped many, many of them get off the streets. We've made, a, we've made a significant investment in Detroit, and I'm really excited that, that we have done that. In the chat, Sherelle and Courtney, or one or both of you, can you explain what you mean by whether a supporter has a pure heart or not? I guess, Sherelle, you were the one that used that term. So uh, in my description of someone being genuine, I was just being clever by adding Pure Heart because uh, the name of our organization is Pure Heart Foundation, right? But if I had to explain what I meant by that, it's just some someone simple, uh, simply is, you know, just having the heart to serve our young people and um, just having the right perspective and being genuine and pure uh, attentions is very critical because our population of children is very vulnerable. And uh, in order to serve them, you must uh, have a, a, a clear conscience, right? A pure heart and recognize that uh, your service is um, so critical that it can either hurt or help elevate the work that we're trying to do. So it's very important that anyone that uh, affiliates with our organization has genuine spirit uh, when they're serving our young people and families. Courtney, did you want to add anything to that? I think that Sherelle hit the nail on the head. I will also just add being trauma-informed is super important. And so simply what that means is knowing the effects of trauma and what that does for a young person. Um, a lot of times when we get volunteers, they may look at the youth that we service and they're afraid of them, or they don't necessarily understand the nature of trauma 
Um, and so they judge them as bad or they label them as, you know, delinquent. Um, so it's really important to understand trauma um, where you're looking to serve youth who have been heavily impacted by it. There was one other question. There was a comment, first of all, from somebody watching in who thanked the three of you for the great work that you're doing. There was a there was a comment to me to ask if I could explain why I felt uncomfortable approaching you, Sherelle and Courtney. When we spoke uh, the first time, I explained to you, you know, maybe it's the generation that I come from. I was uncomfortable, but I also felt that telling you that I was uncomfortable. Anybody who knows me knows that I say what's on my mind, and by telling you, I think that we, I believe, we established a stronger connection. There is a new message that just popped up. Do you feel, the three of you, that your issues are getting the attention that they deserve right now? I would just say really quickly, the social issue for us, I think that COVID-19 really exasperated um, some of the challenges that many of the young people that we face serve. Um, do I believe that it's getting the attention that it deserves? No, but I do think that it's been brought to a national scale and more people are aware of why it's important for every young person to have their basic needs um, as a result of COVID-19. I agree with that also. Um, no, I don't feel like it's you know receiving the attention that it needs, but I will say um, prison reform is one of the topics that is being communicated across this country now. So I believe if we keep elevating the work that we do because, um, 2.7 million children currently have a parent incarcerated and 5.1 million children has had a parent incarcerated before reaching the age of 10. So um, I think the world is recognizing the silent struggles of children of incarcerated parents and them being the victims of mass incarceration now. Um, so it is my prayer and hope that as Pure Heart and other organizations around the country doing similar work, um, keep pushing forward and pushing that needle, it will then receive the attention. But we're definitely being elevated, especially with COVID-19 and the lockdown in the facilities. Um, most of those inmates, right, are fathers and mothers. 92% of men incarcerated are fathers and 80% of women incarcerated are mothers. So, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I can keep um, going. <laughs> um, I've got... Well, now there's a, a, a load of things that are streaming in. One of the questions is, what brings all of you hope? Significant question. David, you want to jump in? As a former teacher, you know you have to hold on to those those positive moments because they may be fleeting, especially when you're in your first year. And so I, I hold close to the experiences of our students and the hope that I have for you know, the, the gains that they've made, the, the opportunities that are opening and the people that they're becoming and so many more that we'll be able to um, serve in the future. I hold on to one God because I know that I was called to this work. I just didn't roll out of bed and think uh, of this idea. I know that he literally took my purpose, I mean, my pain and turned it to purpose. And uh, another thing that I hold on to is our scholars. All of them at some point felt forgotten. And when I founded Pure Heart, I made a promise to them. So um, it's no longer about me. It's holding on to hope for them. 
You know, if I don't do it, who will step up for them? Who will be their voice? So that really keeps me grounded. And even when times when it's, I'm faced with adversity as a leader, I hold on to what they need still. And I recognize that that moment or that hopeless moment isn't worth not answering the call to God and not being responsible for what I started. Courtney? Um, yes, I would have to echo all of what David and Sherelle said. Um, my faith is a very important piece of this work. Um, my faith in God um, and knowing that this work is so much bigger than me that if I don't fulfill my purpose, there are literally young people who are on the street today that may not have a place to, to live. And so the hope that I have is seeing the young person who was living, you know, on the porch of the church move into their own apartment. It is seeing the young person who may not have not known that they could graduate from high school, graduate from high school as a result of our program. My hope is in the young man who came to the Detroit Phoenix Center that was recently released from jail and just really just needed to take a shower. Um, and my hope is, is in my faith and in the youth and the faith of the brilliant, resilient, amazing, creative, talented um, youth that we serve every single day and the spirit of Detroit uh, and the youth that we serve. That's what keeps me going. Thank you. David, there's one question that popped up for you specifically. What do you feel is the experience the youth take with them from the field trips with the barn par partners emotionally and, and spiritually? There's absolutely something spiritual about connecting with horses, but I have to say that, you know, we, we travel significant distances to generous partner barns that, that welcome us into their space, but it's not, it's not a space that our students can own. We don't necessarily know the next time we're going to be back at that particular barn, you know, with those people and, and those horses. And so it does, you know, set up kind of an, an unstable opportunity because our students don't have uh, a home base in terms of the, the horse setting of their own, something that they can rely on, can come on, come to every day after school, during breaks, on the weekends. Um, and so we're really looking, as, as much as we appreciate those opportunities to get outside the city, see something different, meet with, you know, people from a different background, um, you know, we know that those kinds of outward facing opportunities will come from a secure place of strength when our students have a space of their own that they have ownership of that's accessible in their community. Horses need care 365 days a year and there'll be an opportunity to connect with horses at our future facility any day that they want. Um, and that kind of dependability and sense of self and the identity that comes from seeing themselves reflected in a space is something that we're not able to provide at this time and something we really look forward to in the future. Our time is over. Again, I want to thank our three panelists. I want to thank all of you who joined us tonight. I hope that you got as much out of this as, as I did and as I do every day as I go about doing this work. I want to also, before we end, remind you that April 11th is our second webinar where we will be hearing from four women who are working on resettling refugees in the U.S. So again, I thank you for all of you who are celebrating the upcoming Passover holiday. I wish you a good Passover and a happy Easter to the rest of you. Good night.